Did you come here to worship today? Yes. I, I, I'm, I'm, I realize that can sound confrontational. Did you come? No, I'm not, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm just asking, did you come to church to worship? Were you, here's another question, worshiping before you walked in, before Becky started playing? Will you be worshiping when you leave here? Will you be worshiping after the sun goes down this evening? Will you still be worshiping tomorrow? I'm asking the question because Paul's going to be asking the question. Paul's going to be asking us as we turn to Romans 12, are we worshiping God with our lives every moment of our lives? It's the question Paul's going to have for us this morning. You can guess what he's going to suggest our answer ought to be. Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, which every other literal Bible translation renders, which is your spiritual act of worship, your spiritual service of worship, which is how you worship. And do not be conformed to this world, Paul continues, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's it. Short text this morning. Short passage, but a deep passage, right? There's a lot going on in those two verses. In fact, Paul just gave us a three-point outline in those two verses. Paul just laid on us why we worship, what worship is, what it is to worship, and how to worship. Now the third bullet point, he's going to continue and expand upon for the rest of the chapter all the way into the middle of chapter 15. He's going to be there for a while, getting into the details, getting into the specifics, some concrete, practical, here's how in this context, here's how in this setting, here's how in, 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 when, you're, when you're in this part of your life. But, but big picture, he just gave it to us. If you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, that's our outline this morning, those three points. And no slides this morning, I apologize for that. I'll try to call the big things out and I'll try to repeat things um, when I can. But that's our outline. Why do we worship? What is worship? And how do we worship? That'll take us a half an hour or so and it'll leave time for communion, which I know it's a week early, but it fits so well with this passage I just had to. So let's get into it. Why do we worship? Paul just gave us the answer in verse 1. It had to be either verse 1 or verse 2, because there's no, but I bese why worship? I beseech you, therefore, when we see you, therefore, we know what it's there for. We don't have to ask. It's Paul pivoting. It's Paul saying, hey, because this is true that I just told you, this is also true that I'm about to tell you. Because we just talked about this, it should make sense that we're going to talk about this. Because we, we agree on this over here, surely you will also agree with this over there. And what, what, what this over there is, what he's about to talk about, is worship. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
we haven't even gotten to what worship is yet, but, but we can't help noticing that's what worship is because we recognize it. We, 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 it jumps out at us because we, we think about sacrifice and we think about the priests and we think about the lambs and the doves and the oxen and, and, and all of the offerings in the temple. And we say, oh, that was worship. That was Old Testament worship. And so too, God is calling us to present our bodies, which by the way, are the temple, as living sacrifices. That's worship. But that's point number two, and we're not there yet. We haven't, we haven't even started point number one. But still, we know that's what worship is. We'll talk more about it in a second. Let's do point number one. Why do point number two? Why worship? Paul just told us that he just told us. That's what he says in verse one. Therefore, I just told you why. In light of everything I just said is why you worship. What's everything you just said, Paul? In light of God's tender mercies that we've been talking about is why you worship. And Paul is really sure that, that we're with him. Because every step along the way, what has he done? Now here's what you're going to think. Here's where you might object. Here's what you might not be sure about. So by the time we get to chapter 12, he says, look, I've answered all your questions. I've responded to every conceivable objection. There is no basis left on which you can rationally disagree. So on the basis of all of that, on the basis of God's tender mercies that we've been exploring together, I'm begging you to see what I see. And I'm begging you to see that the only right response to the mercy that God has shown us is to worship. Question. Don't ask questions, Patrick. I didn't like the last one. I'm going to ask anyway. What tender mercies is Paul referring to? The easy answer, the obvious answer, is the tender mercies he's been talking about in chapters 9, 10, and 11. As he's gone on this excursus talking about God's continuing love to Israel, his tender mercy toward Israel, not forsaking Israel the way that Israel forsook Jesus, not rejecting Israel the way that Israel rejected Jesus, not destroying Israel in judgment the way that Israel tried to destroy Jesus on the cross. No, in tender mercy, for the last three chapters, Paul's been reminding us that God will yet call Israel, chasten Israel, chase after Israel, and revive her and restore her and remarry her. We talked about that last week, right? In his mercy, God finds forgiveness for Israel. That was last week. And that reminded us, hey, we get to be like God. We get to be merciful. We get to be like God and forgive. And at the end of the service, almost as an afterthought, we said, you know what? God's tender mercies toward Israel also remind us not only to forgive, God's tender mercies towards Israel remind us we are forgiven. Hopefully that just made a connection. Hopefully a light bulb just went off. Because of God's tender mercies, we are forgiven. Wait a minute. Paul's talking about way more than Israel. Paul's talking about 
what he's been talking about since he's been talking the whole letter. He's making a much broader point, a much grander point. His, the tender mercies of God in, in view here are the mercies he's been describing all throughout the book of Romans. Eleven chapters, and if you think about it, it's been one ongoing revelation, exposition of God's mercy. I'll let you go back and, 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 and review that on your own, but if you had to come up with one word to describe the subject of Paul's letter to the Romans, I, I think I'd go with salvation, wouldn't you? This is, it's not for nothing that like some people call this the gospel according to Paul. It's, it's, a, it's a systematic theology of salvation. And if we break it down, the points through which Paul has brought us, he's talked about justification, right? When we were saved, when we traded places with Jesus at the cross, when we said, Jesus, take all of my sin and, 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 and yeah, if I have to, I'll take all of your righteousness. We talked about justification, believing on Jesus and being saved. We talked about glorification, that they... We see Jesus face to face, and we will be saved in the sense of receiving glorified bodies. We talked about sanctification, the present tense of our salvation, the process through which God makes us more and more and more like Jesus. We talked about identification, how we are in Christ, how we believe into Christ, how we're made like Christ and adopted into God's family. We're brothers, we're joint heirs with Christ. We talked about liberation. Paul spent a chapter and a half talking about how we're no longer under the law. We've been freed from sin and death. Liberation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The righteous demands of the law have been forever satisfied through the blood of Jesus. At the end of chapter 8, Paul said, hey, for you who are in Christ Jesus, no separation, nothing, no one not even yourself can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that'll be true for Israel one day. It's true for us today. Israel will discover that it's true for them as well one day because of God's unceasing dedication, his ongoing love and attention. That's everything Paul's been talking about, right? Everything we've been studying for, gosh, coming up on a year now. I said I would repeat the big points. Justification glorification, sanctification, identification, liberation, no condemnation, no separation, unceasing dedication. And because of that, that's the therefore. Therefore, because of all that, Paul says, on the basis of all those tender mercies, worship. Because Jesus died for us, live for him. Because of everything Jesus' death purchased for us. Because everything we have because of him. Everything we are because of him. Live for him. Worship. Sang a song last week we haven't sung in a while, but boy, is it one of my favorites. The Wondrous Cross. We sang the Tomlin version. The original hymn was written by Isaac Watts in 1707. And the words just resound. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. What is worship? That's it. 
Present yourself a living sacrifice. Choose God. Where? Everywhere. When? Always. The universe is binary. I say that a lot because it's never not true. The universe is binary. Everything we encounter in this life is one of two things. It's God or it's not God. Worship is choosing God. Worship is choosing God, choosing God in our thoughts, choosing God in our actions, choosing God with our priorities. Worship is choosing God. And as I do, he glorifies himself in and through my life. And any time we, we ask ourselves, why? Why am I choosing God? Because the world is starting to look pretty good again. Why am I choosing God? Because they look like they're having a lot of fun over there. What's the big deal about choosing God? Because I'm really not sure I remember right now. I really think I want to sin. What Paul is saying is go back to the why, and the why is God's tender mercies. If worship seems unimportant, I don't have a sin problem, I have a worship problem. If sin looks attractive, I'm worshiping the wrong things. And I'm forgetting the right things. I'm forgetting the cross. When I remember the cross, when I meditate on the cross, when I go back to the cross and try to wrap myself around the enormity of the love that held Jesus to the cross, the tender mercy that brought him to the cross, oh, I have to worship. I, I, I can't not present myself to God a living sacrifice. I can't not love him when I remember, when I recognize how much he loved me. And that's the what that I want to focus on. We've, we've tagged, we've touched what a couple times already. We've said what is, is living sacrifice. We've said what is choosing God. But, but understand that part of that choosing God is loving God, loving God back. And we tend to forget that, especially here in this verse. We forget that worship and love are inseparable. They're part and parcel of the same thing. And we lose it because we, we read Paul's language about holy, acceptable, reasonable. And that seems very formal. But it's also very much about love. If you've studied this passage before, you've no doubt had somebody connect verse 1 of chapter 12 with verse 1 of chapter 1, where Paul introduces himself and he says, hey, it's me, it's Paul, I'm the one who's writing here, a bondservant of God. And we go to Exodus 21, we go to Deuteronomy 15, what's a bondservant of God? And we read the whole thing about how a bondservant is a slave by choice, a doulos. Someone who was a slave and either was redeemed from slavery, someone paid money to free them, or the, the time in which they were uh, committed to slavery, a lot of people were, were, were enslaved for a period of time. The, the time ran out, they, they, they did their sentence. Maybe they were freed because it, it was a jubilee year and all the slaves were set free. But a bondservant is a slave who, having been set free said, I want to continue in service to this master. And actually, you could also just roll up on someone and say, hey, I want to be your bondservant, having never been their slave. But either way, a bondservant is what it sounds like, a slave by choice. 
And then you go back to, to Deuteronomy 15, to Exodus 21, and you read everything, okay, about the bondservant having their ear pressed against the doorpost and the all driven through, and they were marked as a bondservant and so on. Paul's saying, that's, that's me. I chose to serve Jesus. I'm a slave by choice. Because having been saved by Jesus, I recognized that was my reasonable service. That was my spiritual worship. And, 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 and the, the thing is, that's, that's completely right, that's completely true. But we, we, we run into a problem translating that idea into our culture, into our context. It loses something in translation because of what slavery means to us. In our culture, slavery was our first great national sin. Abortion was our second. And we can't separate the word slavery from the, the horrific images, the, the, the tragedy and the inhumanity and the indecency and the, the sinfulness of it. So, so when, as soon as we start talking about anything to do with it, there's a translation issue. And what we tend to lose is the heart of what Paul is talking about here. The heart of a bondservant was a relationship based on love. When Paul talks about being a bondservant, he's talking about loving. He's talking about, in gratitude, serving his liberator. We were slaves. We were slaves to sin and death and Satan, right? We were liberated. We were redeemed from captivity. We were set free. And in love, we responded to that liberator, to that redeemer. And we respond to Jesus, our Redeemer, in all of the other ways in which he loves us. Go back to that list we made of all of the different expressions of God's tender mercies. We said he justifies us. Okay, we love him as Savior. Think about pictures, think about newsreel footage you've seen of prisoner of war camps, of, of, of concentration camps, of villages that were enslaved, being, being liberated at the end of a war, and the jubilation, and the excitement, and the love that the people had for their liberators. That's the love that we're to have for Jesus. That's our worship. Jesus sanctifies. We talked about that being an expression of his tender mercies, right? He sanctifies. He teaches us. He mentors us. Think about your favorite teacher. You've heard me talk about my football coach. You've met Pastor Ed, who was my mentor as a, as a, as a young minister. And and, and you know the love that I have for those guys, the gratitude the, for, the, for the patience that they showed and, and the correction that they gave, the, the, the ways they helped me become the man of God that I am. That's Jesus, and we love Jesus as he does that. We love Jesus for doing that. Jesus, we said, identifies with us. God adopted us, made us Jesus' brothers. We sang that in, in not one but two songs. We sang it in, in As the Deer, right? You're my friend and you are my brother even though you're a king. We sang it in the goodness of God. He's our brother. And, and, and we're to love Jesus like a brother. Love, love God like a father. And, and, and we come to that and some of us, I'll talk about me, I come to that and I pause because my relationship with my dad wasn't the best. 
My dad wasn't the dad that I, I wished that he were. My brother, I, my brother, my relationship with my brother is as good as it's ever been, and that's still not what I wish it were. And so I say, hey, love Jesus like a brother, love God like a father. I can, I can, I can, I can stall. Because wait, I, I, I don't really understand what that is. I've never experienced that. I don't know that. Except, yeah, I do. Because how do I know that I was disappointed in those relationships? It's because I had an expectation that wasn't met. So somewhere in my head, somewhere in my heart, I had a picture of what that ideal father was. Because I know that my old man fell short. God doesn't fall short of my expectation. In fact, he exceeds it. I know that my relationship with my brother, my biological brother, is not what I wish it were. Why? Because I've seen brothers and I have a picture of what it is to be loving brothers, and, and we're not. But I know that Jesus is that and more. So I get to love God as a father. I get to love Jesus as my brother. We're no longer under the law. We'll keep going. No condemnation, we said. That's one of the ways that God loves us. Chapter 5, we're no longer enemies of God. In fact, we're 180 degrees the opposite. We're allies of God in his battle against sin and death and Satan. We're not only no longer enemies of God, we're brothers in arms with God. And maybe you haven't experienced that, but you've seen it. I had lunch with another Calvary pastor last week. Turns out he's a Navy guy, which I didn't know. You don't meet a lot of Navy guys in Wichita. We're as far from an ocean as you can get without getting closer to another ocean. But, and he was speaking with, with, with tremendous fondness and affection about, about his shipmates. He said, he said, you know, it's, it's one thing to meet another Navy guy. Because he, the, the guys that I served with, the guys that I sailed with, that's a bond for life. And he started you know, telling me about this guy called and we all jumped in cars and we all went to where he is and that guy called and we all got on planes and went to where he was. That was a lifelong, uh, unbreakable relationship. That's the way that Jesus loves us. We call, he comes running. It doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter what we need. He's there for us and we get to love him that same way. No separation we said, the bottom of Romans 8, neither height nor depth nor anything else that you can name will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Where do we encounter that idea in human relationships? Marriage, till death do us part. Nothing is going to separate us from each other, babe. We're in this forever. We're in this for life. Which you know in our society turns out to be kind of a coin flip. Sadly. But footnote, the next time that someone says, hey, the divorce rate in the church is the same as it is in, in gen pop, in, in the population at large, point out, yes, church, if you define it broadly, church, if you let people self-assess, I, I, I'm part of the church, I go to church, I am a Christian. People who actually go to church weekly, attend a worship service weekly, people who pray together as a family, people who are in the word more than once a week, the divorce rate plummets. But that's neither here nor there. Everyone on their wedding day believes that their love is going to be forever. Jesus, our bridegroom, when he says it, he means it. He says to us, his bride, my love for you is forever. Nothing will separate. We can run away. Nothing will separate. 
When God says forever, he means it. He proves it with Israel. Israel runs away. Israel cheats on God. Israel commits spiritual adultery. And God said, yeah, but my love for you knows no bounds. He's the ideal father, the brother we always wanted, the perfect spouse. You know, when, when, when Paul writes to, to the Ephesians, talking about marriage, husbands, lay down your lives for your wives the way that Christ gave himself for the church. Jesus did that. And so we respond. We respond to his love, and that's worship. Let's bring it back around. When we love him because he first loved us, when we love him as he first loved us, when we choose him, when we give him our heart and strength, soul and mind and strength, we're worshiping. We're worshiping. Let's talk about how. Roman number three already. How do we do that? Paul tells us. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, present yourself a living sacrifice that you might prove the good and acceptable perfect will of God. How do I know what that is? By refusing, Paul says, he, he, he tells us, we worship by refusing to take our cues from the world. By re refusing to let the world tell us how to be and what to do. By choosing to let God finish the work he began in us. We're new creations in Christ Jesus, right? But some of that work is ongoing. The word that we see here is metamorphosis. If you look under transform, that's the Greek. Metamorphosis. And if you look at older commentaries on Scripture, it will undoubtedly talk about the metamorphosis between a caterpillar and a butterfly. The transformation from one thing with one nature into another thing with another nature. The other, way, the other place the word shows up in Scripture is on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transformed before Peter, James, and John in, into, his, into his glorified form. They saw something very different. How do we worship? We let God continue his work of transformation. We let him continue that, that metamorphosis in it. Here's a new metaphor. You won't find it in any older commentaries, but you'll find it in some new ones. We let God reprogram our brains. Here in the information age, that's a metaphor that works for us, right? We come from the factory with defective operating systems. Wait, are you saying that God makes junk? No, God makes things perfect. But our operating system was affected with a virus. We're now SIN positive. We come from the factory with a defect, with a flaw. Our natural minds do not align with God. They just don't. Our natural minds align with the world. And that's a problem because who's in charge of the world right now? Satan. Since the days of Cain, when Cain blew town, when he left the garden and went out into the world, the worldly system, the world's priorities, have been anything but God. The world's priorities are, are free to be you and me. The world's priorities are take what's yours and take what's somebody else's. The world's priorities are do what you need to do to, to, to feel better. The world's priorities are do unto others, but do it before they do it to you. Anything but God. 
How do we reprogram our operating system to choose God? How do we reprogram our operating system to worship God and not the world? God and not ourselves. We renew our minds. We reprogram our minds. We wash our minds. How do we wash our minds? How do we renew our minds? With the word. How do we know? Because God's word says so. And and, and, then that's what renewing our mind is. It's letting God's word tell us how God thinks. And then aligning our thinking with his. If we want to choose what God chooses, if we want to love the way God loves, it starts with thinking the way that God thinks. And the way that we discover that is to read the word of God through through the spiritual eyes that the Spirit of God gives us. Reject the priorities of the world. Start with the premise that there's nothing for us there. Because we never found anything that we were looking for there, did we? Did anybody find peace, love, joy in the world? Okay, so let's, let's start on the assumption that collectively we've done enough research. It's not there. <laughs> and let's believe that the abundant life that Jesus promises is here. It's aligning our thoughts with his thoughts. It's letting the world teach us how to worship, how to draw close to God, how to discover the joy and peace that's waiting in him. Don't be conformed. Let go of what the world teaches and what the world examples. Be transformed. Examine every assumption that you have. Examine the choices that you make, the actions that you take in light of God's word. Is this how God thinks? Is this love? Is this what love does? Can I do this as worship unto the Lord? This is, this is take every thought captive territory, right? Second, Second Corinthians 10 2, take every thought captive unto the obedience of God. How do we know if we're obeying God? His word tells us. Take every thought captive under the obedience of Christ and do what Paul is saying in every aspect of your life. A couple weeks ago, more than a couple weeks ago, we were in Romans 10, 9 and 10. We were talking about sharing our faith, talking about evangelism. And, and for the sake of illustration, for the sake of conversation, we divided our lives into, I think it was like five categories. There's home and family. We said that's familial where we shop and eat and buy and sell, that's financial. Where we live, our neighborhood, that's geographical. Our friends, that's social. Where we work, that's vocational. And, and, and what we were saying is, hey, there are people in every part of our lives, people in each of those segments of our lives that don't know Christ. People that we have an opportunity to tell about Christ. Uh, people that we have an opportunity to, to, to show Christ people that we have an opportunity to invite out to a, to a church function to hear about Christ, to an Easter service, to a, to a men's retreat. I hope you're, hope you're praying about those things still, praying for those people still. But to go back to those categories, every one of them belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? God paid for us, purchased us with his blood, There's no part of our life that isn't rightfully his, but he's not demanding. He's never wanted to demand our affection. 
He's never wanted to forcefully obtain worship because that wouldn't be love. So God doesn't demand. Paul says, yeah, and that's all the more reason we should offer. That's all the more reason observing a love so amazing, so divine, that we should recognize that the right response to that love is, is our heart and mind and soul and strength are all. Let's pick one. Let's pick one and just, and just play with it a little bit. Let's talk about what it would be to worship God with everything that we are at work, with everything that we do at work. What would that look like? Well, what does the word tell us? The reason, the reason I'm picking one is, is if I just say, hey, so go out and worship God with everything that you are, everywhere that you are, everywhere that you go, that's overwhelming. That's, that, that's crushingly overwhelming. Talking about my brother earlier. My relationship with my brother started getting better, sadly, after my mom died. Because we looked at each other and we said, okay, well, we're, we're all we have now is, is us. We're what's left. Um, and, and really, the, the, the moment that it started was when we met up at my mom's townhouse up in, up in Minnesota to clean it out after, after she died. And, and if you've done that, you know, where do you start? Because, because there's stuff everywhere, and everywhere there's stuff are memories. Where do you begin? And, and we sort of wandered, like, like in a trance, from room to room, to room, there's stuff here. No, there's a lot of stuff. No, there's a lot of stuff there. And, and finally, we just said, look, we got to start somewhere. So we started with a closet. Let's clean out our bedroom closet. And, 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 and then we did the next thing, and then we did the next thing. And then, but we had to start somewhere. So, so that, that's what I'm saying is, hey, let's start somewhere. And let's talk about what would it be to really let God transform us, to stop being conformed to the world's expectations of us, but to really worship in one part of our life, and I'm just arbitrarily saying work. What would that be? Well, what, what's at work? You got a boss at work. What does the word say about how we regard, how we respond to our bosses? Peter said anybody can be a good employee for a good boss. It takes a Christian to be an exemplary employee for a bad boss. So don't conform. Hey, I'll give what I, you know, I'll, I'll give as I get. You treat me right, I'll treat you right. Treat me shabby and, well, I'll quit in place. <laughs> the Bible says no. If you want to worship at work, you're the best employee that that bad boss has. What does Scripture say about the measure we give at work? Conform to this world says get away with anything you can get away with. It's not cheating if you don't get caught. And they build that into the system. You know, they're expecting you to, to take certain liberties. And God's word says, no, give good measure and then some. Every workplace I've ever, ever been in, including churches, there's grumbling. What does the Bible say about grumbling? Don't. If you have to, grumble to the Lord. What does the Bible say about gossiping? Every workplace I've ever been in, including churches, there's gossip. What does the Bible say? Sin. Talk to people, don't talk about people. We, we look at jobs and careers sometimes as, as the thing that's going to complete us, the thing that's going to fulfill us, the place that we go to be happy. What does the Bible say? No. In his presence is fullness of joy. 
So to the extent that we're serving him and worshiping him and being his witnesses at work, yeah, there might be joy at work. But the work in and of itself is not going to complete us or fulfill us. Only Jesus does that. And, and yeah, our workplace is a mission field. Are we, are we paying attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit in being witnesses at work? Are we praying for the people that we work with? It, it, you get where I'm going, and you can probably think of more, and the Holy Spirit will probably show you more. The idea is, at work we have choices. To take our cues from the way things are always done and the way that other people do them and the way that the world says is all right, or to take our cues from the Word of God. Our choice is to be conformed or transformed. Our choice is to worship the world or worship the true and living God who saved us. And so, so, so start with work or start somewhere else. I don't care. But start. Pick a segment of your life and start. And, and, and just focus on that for a season. 30 days, it takes 30, 60 days to make a habit, depending upon whose research you look at. 30, 60 days to make a habit. When you think you've got momentum, when you've gotten accustomed to saying, hey, what does God think about this? What, is, what does love say here? What does love do here? What does worship look like here in this context? Then, then move on and say, okay, I'm going I'm to clean out another room. I'm going to let God clean out another room. I'm not saying that you can't work on more than one thing at a time. If God is convicting you about your, your, your neighbors or... Your, your, or another part of your life. Don't say, okay, God, I'm not working on this right now. I don't want to hear from you about my neighborhood. We're working on work now. So just, just save that, Jesus. Now, if the Holy Spirit calls attention to something, you respond to the thing he's calling attention to. Cooperate with him. Let him transform your thinking. Reprogram your operating system, to do what? To worship him. Because as we're choosing God more and more and more, as we're rejecting the claims of the world and living for God more and more and more, what are we doing? We're worshiping. That's the how. And as we choose to worship, we manifest we, we declare and we demonstrate that good and holy and perfect will of God, which leads to more and more worship, which leads to more and more demonstration, more and more display of, of the perfect, holy, acceptable will of God, which leads to more worship and more glory and more worship and more glory. Father, oh, teach us to worship. And teach us to worship you. We are, we are made to worship. We don't have a problem worshiping. Teach us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Teach us Jesus, who loved us, who made manifest your mercy toward us, who even now lives to make intercession for us. Teach us the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and empowers us, who leads and guides us, who convicts us. Teach us to heed your voice. Teach us to, to love your word. To find the answers to life's problems. To find the recipe for worship. 
to give glory to your name. 